stories from around the corner and around the country. You're listening to All the Best. Proudly supported by the Art Gallery of New South Wales. You're listening to All the Best from FBI Radio 94.5. I'm Madhura Prakash. Before we get into this week's stories, I'd like to take a moment to acknowledge that I'm recording from stolen Gadigal land and pay my respect to Gadigal elders past and present and also recognise that the area where FBI Radio is situated, Bradfern, has long been a place of storytelling, strength, resistance and resilience for First Nations communities. When I was around 13, I became obsessed with baking pavlovas. I loved the magic of being able to transform gooey egg whites into fluffy, stiff peaks. The drama of holding the bowl over my head to prove I had whipped the concoction just right. And the resource efficiency of only needing two ingredients, egg whites and caster sugar. But of course, one doesn't become an expert pav baker overnight. I had to practice. And fail. A lot. In my quest for pavlova perfection, I presented my family with many types of pavs. A berry pavlova, a mango pavlova, a burnt pavlova, and a kind of vinegary pavlova. Despite being obsessed with baking pavlova, I've never actually liked eating it. So it was my poor parents and sisters who were tasked with consuming my various creations. Which, to their credit, they did with only some complaint. But it was all worth it, because to this day, if my loved ones need a pav, I'm always happy to break out the beaters. First up this week, Claire shares a story about Christmas leftovers, filled with excitement, adventure, and some potent olfactory descriptions. So I was at a crossroads in my evening. Take a shower or stay in my stinky, sweaty, crusted gym clothes and hook into some Boxing Day leftovers. The decision was easy. The shower could wait, I thought. Boxing Day comes once a year. It's the best leftovers. I wait all year for these leftovers. There is nothing quite like it. It's just about you and the fridge. There's no family, there's no orphan family, there's no time limit. It's just all the delicious tidbits left over from a cracking Christmas day. Mind you, this was no ordinary sweat. This was post-Christmas day meat sweats. And this was also wet season sweat. This is the kind of sweat that you need to turn on the air conditioning to wrestle yourself into your gym clothes just to get yourself to the gym. Safe to say, I smelt like a bloated buffalo on the side of the Stewart Highway. (laughs) Regardless, I pushed on with the leftovers. I got my plate. It was all there. The potato bake, the glazed ham. There was even some tiger prawns. It was all there sitting in front of me. (laughs) I could hear the rain coming in through the window. I didn't have to turn on the air conditioning and I settled in. But this wouldn't be a survival story if it was just me sitting in my own filth eating swine. (laughs) (laughs) So the phone rings. It's my offsider. He's, He's first on call. 
Claire, we've got to get this patient down to Catherine tonight. She might need surgery. She's on a lot of fluids. We've organised a halfway meet with the Catherine Ambos. They're on their way up and we need to leave. I'm picking up in five minutes. <sighs> okay, the leftovers are going to have to wait and so's the shower. <laughs> <laughs> I gathered some gear, chucked on some thongs and away we went. So there we were, my colleague, the agency nurse, he was relieving in Pine Creek over the Christmas period. He was at the helm. Me in the back, in my stinky, sweaty gym clothes. And our poor patient, she was on a stretcher in the back of basically a modified troop carrier, which was the bush ambulance. And off we headed into the dark, wet night. The gummed up wiper blades could barely keep up with what was now torrential rain. But I was feeling pretty relaxed because this was a routine halfway meet between two ambulances and soon I'd be back to my leftovers. <laughs> I wasn't very relaxed, however, when the bush ambulance hit a rogue patch of flood water and we started aquaplaning down the Stewart Highway. There was no grip on the wheels. There was water all over the windscreen. We were all thrown up in the car. My patient, who was re reclined on a stretcher, started to pull off her restraints. I checked my BO and I threw myself onto her to try and stop her from clambering out. We both got thrown up into, this into the air while my colleague fought to regain control of the vehicle, which he did. We were all pretty shaken up by this, but uh, we survived and headed down the Stewart Highway in what was the first obstacle that we were to face this evening. <laughs> So a halfway meet um, uh, on the side of the road between two ambulances to transfer a patient in a stretcher is tricky uh, at the best of times and in the torrential rain and in the dark it's even trickier. Uh, and neither for, none of the four health professionals were particularly prepared. We had some raincoats and we had some umbrellas uh, but the water was just gushing in off the top of both of the ambulances. We managed to keep our patient dry as we transferred her from one, the back of one ambulance into the other. But we were just completely wet. There was water running down the back of our legs and into our socks and shoes. And for those of us wearing thongs, we were slipping and sliding around in the mud like little baby giraffes trying to figure out our feet for the first time. It was a debacle. Um, but we did, we waved off the ambulance and we were pretty sodden and looked at ourselves and so first on call, nurse and myself, we, we headed back to try and traverse the water that we'd just aquaplaned through. However, the water had risen in that time and my offsider, he wanted to play it safe. He was being very cautious. He, he was saying, no, nah, look, the water's just risen too much. We can't, we can't. By this stage, however, I was in sodden, filthy, buffalo, stinking gym clothes <laughs> and the desire for a shower was outweighing my leftovers because I had what was an emerging, suspicious thrush versus lycra fungus <laughs> situation developing. <laughs> I was like... So I, I had a vested interest in getting across this flood water back to my leftovers and a clean pair of undies. He did not. <laughs> Common sense prevailed, however, and we retreated and turned around and we had to spend the night in the Catherine Hospital. This was unsettling for a few reasons. 
Uh, mainly because this threw myself and this um, older male nurse, who I had only just met, uh, into quite an intimate survival situation. <laughs> uh, and there was only a thin curtain that separated our plastic mattresses in this abandoned ward of the Catherine Hospital. So we were, we were peeling off our, our sodden clothes and I was bringing out my, my sports bra and my undies and so the, the next unsettling thought was the dawning realisation that I would have to get back into these clothes <laughs> come morning. <laughs> um, and the other unsettling thing was that the, the rain didn't let up overnight. It just kept on raining and we woke in the morning to the news that a freight train had been derailed from the flooded... Um, the flood water had um, set it off the track and it had smashed into the Stewart Highway. So even if the flood water did recede, we were unable to proceed north back to my clean undies and the leftovers. <laughs> uh, so there we were. There was, there was Christmas travellers, there was tourists, there was fresh food, trucks and us, the drowned Pine Creek bush rats <laughs> stuck in Catherine. Um, we organised a charter plane, uh, we had one organised for us and we got flown back to Darwin, borrowed the boss's Prado and uh, managed to get back to Pine Creek. In that time I'd, I'd had some hospital food, more porridge than I'd had in my entire human life <laughs> and too much, far too much instant coffee but I I'd still hadn't had a decent feed. Uh, so when I walked in my front door into Pine Creek, what did I do? I approached the fridge. <laughs> My ungodly buffalo sweat was no comparison to this dink that met me coming out of the fridge. In that time, there'd been a power outage. <laughs> so my dreams for 2011 Boxing Day leftovers were finally dead. <laughs> and in conclusion... I did the decent thing. I did the thing that I should have done 50 hours ago. And I used all of the hot water. And I took a shower. <laughs> that story was told by Claire Callahan as part of the survival-themed Spun Stories Night. You're listening to All the Best, from FBI Radio 94.5. I'm Madhura Prakash. Are you interested in creating your very own audio story? All the Best is dedicated to supporting emerging storytellers. You don't need any experience, just enthusiasm. If you're interested, get in touch with us at allthebestradio.com. My family and I are Sri Lankan immigrants. As a result, cooking when I was living with my parents usually meant enduring my father standing centimetres away from me, watching my every move like a hawk, with concern writ on his face and a snarky comment on the tip of his tongue. It's for that reason that listening to the next story brought a big, sympathetic smile to my face. In this story, Anne shares her experiences with the wonders and challenges involved when cooking food in a Chinese immigrant household.
cast your minds to suburban Melbourne, Little Ange, very, very keen to help in the kitchen, you probably think by looking at me that I was taught how to cook all sorts of things by my mum, who was an amazing cook, my dad, who was an amazing cook. Not what you'd expect. So they were paranoid that I would probably set fire to the house. My dad would run fire drills. We lived, we lived in a semi-detached three-bedroom house. There was only two ways out of the place, the front door or the back door, and we would have to practice getting out in a hurry. We weren't setting fire to anything. I wasn't even allowed to have scented candles in my room. Everyone thinks of Asian dads as being kind of scary. He's like Miyagi, so he's like shorter than me. I'm pretty short, little, you know, skinny dude, gentle as, pretty zen. He would probably, he did actually get me to paint the house a lot. Got me to do a whole bunch of tasks. Didn't teach me karate, but he's very, very chill. And yet he was paranoid that we would do something to the house. So kitchen, no-go zone. My mum came from Taiwan and she used to be a primary school teacher. So she was actually terrifying. Uh, she's almost six foot tall. Just She was the ultimate disciplinarian. And part of being second-gen Asian is that uh, at home, everyone is going to practice English. Because if you don't know enough English, everyone's going to pick on you. And um, obviously, my parents had both um, struggled a bit already with this. So, so I only know how to get told off in Mandarin. Um, <laughs> Key takeaway, if you, if you know uh, th this in Mandarin, ayah, it's kind of like, oh my God, what have you done? So to me, cooking wasn't this kind of, you know, wasn't this kind of thing that I was brought up with and, and, and I got told how to do it. It was always basically dark magic to me, right? Dumplings, spring rolls, all sorts of magical things that, that my mum would like pull out of, like, you know, like, oh, dinner's rainy, that's all right. One minute you smell ginger and eggs frying off, and then the next minute, well, no, stuff is done. That's right. Um, anytime that I tried to help in the kitchen, no, kiboshed. I, um, I tried helping once by cracking the egg for the pancake mix uh, on the ground. Um, and it was, ah, yeah, get out of the kitchen. So, uh, me being a little rebel that I was. One day, my parents were at home. Um, I think I was about, well, I was less than 10. I didn't know very much about cooking, obviously. I knew how to crack eggs. So, of course, I took it upon myself to make a stir fry. So here's the kid. I know how to do all my fire drills. I know where the fire extinguisher is. If anything goes wrong, I know what to do. What I didn't know how to do was cook a stir fry. I cut all of the vegetables, because I knew you needed all of them, like one of everything out of the fridge. This is, this, anyone who knows how to cook a stir fry, just you know, follow along, you know, you know the drill. Um, so you grab one of everything out of the fridge, you cut it all up. Didn't cut myself, that was, that was good. Didn't know any like, first aid. Knew how to get out of the house if things were on fire. So cut everything up, started. We had a gas stove, so that was fun. I knew you needed a wok, that was, that was handy. Put all the veggies in the wok, started cooking them off. It's all, it's all going great guns. It's smelling amazing. I knew there was a cupboard with things in it, like soy sauce and, or again, like dark magic. I was like, oh, this is it. Like, who needs Hogwarts, right? I am right in it. I'm like putting everything in the wok, I'm frying everything off, and then I realised, wait, I need rice. I got this. I got this. So being this kid that doesn't even know how to cook a stir-fry because everything's all smelled ginger and egg, and then dinner's ready. So I had to fill in the gaps. I knew rice needed to be added to the veggies, and I also knew where rice was. <laughs> Second generation Asian kid. It either comes from the rice cooker or it comes from the, from the bin of rice um, because you only buy it by the giant sack. Um, so I knew not to use the sloppy rice cooker rice. 
I knew you needed old rice, but apparently I mixed that up with cold rice and uncooked rice. So I grabbed some uncooked rice, threw that in the wok. So I've cooked up this massive storm and, and of course I've realised that something has just gone wrong. So sure enough, my dad's the first to come home from work. Aya, Get out! <laughs> Parents out there, you could probably take this as a learning opportunity and say, hey, I'll show you how to actually make a stir-fry. Here are the things that you've done wrong. There's, there's several. And take you through. But no, it was get out of the kitchen. Fast forward a few years and, um, and I think my mum was kind of terrified that the more obsessed I got with food or the curiosity of food and this dark magic that I would never get a real job. So I dropped out of engineering. I found that I was struggling with social skills. So of course any logical engineer to be, thinking that they need more social skills, thought let's apply for a hospitality job. Uh, it's not really a logical engineering thing. It was just me thinking, guess what? If I work at a pancake restaurant, I get free pancakes. <laughs> I'm 25 and thinking, if I work at a cafe, I get free coffee. And, and get paid, like, as well, to drink coffee and eat pancakes. And I started thinking, you know what? One day, if I own a restaurant, I can have free whatever it was on the menu and people have to answer to me. And so I started thinking all of these grand things um, and then I got my pay slip and then thought, all right, okay, we're gonna calm down. Um, maybe not a restaurant, maybe a little cafe, like little, you know, I grew up in Melbourne, maybe one of those little hole in the wall places. That's, that's kind of trendy. And um, then I realized you gotta pay rent and you gotta pay staff. And um, one of the um, chefs that I, at, at a cafe that I did work at, walked out during a breakfast shift and I was like, ooh, ooh. I'm a waiter and I, don't, I still don't know how to cook to this day. So I thought, um, uh, better learn how to cook. So I looked in the paper one day and uh, the Air Force was advertising for cooks. This is, this is no longer Kid Ange thinking, let's save up some money and buy a restaurant and run the joint. Um, this, is, uh, this is me thinking, oh yeah? I don't want to get paid $6 an hour to be someone's apprentice and just peel onions for two years. I'll sign up to the military, like any rebel Asian kid would do. Uh, top tip for young players, run away and join the circus. It's um, probably easier to do. So I signed up. One of the fun things that Defence Force Recruiting asks you, it's, it's not like, you know, are you prepared to go to war if, you, if we call upon you, all that kind of stuff. Like, that's, that's fine. I'm fine with that. They said to me, what do your family think about you joining because they need to they need to make sure that I don't know that you haven't been forced into it or I don't even know so I'm 26 and I lied <laughs> I hadn't told my parents that I was going to enlist I um was impulsively just thinking oh that's a lot of free food that I can get <laughs> um to someday run a restaurant or a cafe or a hole in the wall or a I'd, I've just gone down to coffee cart. I could probably manage a coffee cart. <laughs> so my dreams had kind of become manageable and I had to speak to my mum. I, I had to break the news to her. So I said, hey mum, I'm going to Adelaide. Um, and she said, oh, for how long? And I said, oh, about 10 weeks. And then she said, what for? I said, oh, I'm, I'm joining the Air Force. And of course, 
uh, well, this, for the benefit of the people on the podcast, I do not look like a pilot. <laughs> so, that being said, and my mum knew that, obviously, I was halfway through my um, telecommunications engineering degree, and, and she said, so, like, yeah, what are you doing in the Air Force? And I said, I'm going to be a cook. And she said nothing. <laughs> Fast forward to my first posting, which was Newcastle. All right, I'm all trained, I'm ready to roll. Rumour has it that Kylie Kwong is posting in. <laughs> it's very hard to fill Kylie Kwong's shoes. She knows how to cook. <laughs> so, top tip, if anybody ever gets accidentally called Kylie Kwong before they post into an Air Force base as a cook, Stay with me here. This is worldly advice. You may thank me for this later. Set fire to a walk. <laughs> the flashpoint of various oils is such that if you leave it warming up and walk away, it will catch fire. <laughs> this is a little fun game that you can play later on on your way home probably as well. It's to find your DJ name. What you think of is the last thing that you did that attracted unwanted attention. And that is your DJ name. So I am DJ Walkfire. <laughs> and I'm no longer called Kylie Kwong. <laughs> which is great. It was a minimum four years. Some people say you get less for murder. But I actually liked cooking. I was suddenly open to the world of actual dark arts. And I wasn't just making... Okay, I am making up some of it along the way. But that's the magic of cooking. There were several fires. I can assure you it's been at least 20 days since my last walk fire, <laughs> which is great because I've been on long service leave. <laughs> um, but basically, uh, what happened after I'd worked all of these hospitality jobs and, uh, and finally did my tax, I got a giant, giant lump sum of a tax return and... I thought, hey, I could put it towards a, you know, a business course. I could put it down to down payment on a, you know, a truck driving course or you know, get that food van started or the coffee cart started. No, I um, decided to go on a round-the-world tour to eat food. And I thought I would visit Taipei because my mum's mum, my grandma, she was, she was living in Taipei. And I thought, oh, I haven't seen you since I was a little tacker, so I'll go and visit you. And... Little did I know, before I visited Taipei, my mum had rung ahead. And my mum had told my aunties and my grandma, just, just to let you know, these are all my relatives in Taipei. I'm ready to, like, eat the universe. And she told all my relatives in Taipei, Ange only eats Western food. She really likes KFC and McDonald's. She doesn't want to eat any of that weird stuff. I had no idea, so I rock up to my grandma and speak in vaguely broken Mandarin. The first thing I learn in any foreign language is how to talk about food. So I said, shang chu la, which is, I like, I want to eat spicy. And she just looks at me and she says, in Mandarin that I can't actually say, <laughs> but she's, you know, her eyes light up and she suddenly realizes, obviously, my mum was trying to control what I was eating and to, you know, to control me out of the kitchen this entire time. And, um, and one of the, great street food things in Taipei is chou tofu, which people might know of as stinky tofu. So it smells like, I don't know, old socks, like being slowly cooked and fermented, but it's delicious. 
And I guess, like, if there is one message you can take away from DJ Walkfire tonight is, um, <laughs> is sometimes you try and be a rebel. Like, I tried really hard to get back into that kitchen and 11 years later of, like, actually setting fires to things for money, you can get there, but you might not be as much of a rebel as you think you are to begin with. <laughs> Thanks. That story was told by Ange Wu as part of the Rebellion-themed Spun Stories Night. All the best would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands on which we make these stories and pay our respects to Elders past and present. All the best is made at FBI Radio on Gadigal land in association with SIN and 3RRR on Wurundjeri Woiwurrung and Boonwurrung lands and 8CCC on Arunde and Waramungu lands. The All the Best editorial manager is Mel Chun, and Phoebe Adler-Ryan is our production manager. Our social media producer is Isabella Lee. Patrick McKenzie is our community coordinator. Shining Bird composed our theme music, and Annie Hamilton designed the artwork. We're heard across Australia on the Community Radio Network and were made possible by the Art Gallery of New South Wales and the Community Broadcasting Foundation. You can find our full archive of more than 500 episodes at allthebestradio.com. I'm Madhura Prakash. Thanks for listening.
Huh?